Okay, we are your missionaries, and we are thankful to be here today. Pastor Kevin, great greeting or lesson over here. If you want to serve your missionaries in Croatia, an RV would be awesome. An RV of our own that we won't share with anyone. <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, we are your missionaries. We've been in Croatia for 25 years, and this is the first church that, st- that supported us, you guys. From the beginning, you've been with us. And I just want to take just a couple minutes and tell you how thankful, thankful we are for you guys and tell you what you're doing over there. Again, I just don't think missionaries need to come back and say, look what I'm doing, look what I'm doing. First of all, we know it's what the Lord's doing, but this is your money, this is your prayers, this is your support in every way. And so it's really, what are you doing over there? Well, for 25 years in a Catholic country where functionally, functionally it's almost 100% Catholic, we have seen almost 60 baptisms in the last year and a half in just the north part of Croatia where our graduates or professors are, are pastoring. That's pretty awesome. We've seen 15 young people, most of them from Catholicism, come to salvation in the last year or so. Just in, the, just in the northern part of Croatia. We have 25 plus graduates who are pastoring over 50% of, uh, almost 50% of the Protestant churches in Croatia. We're making a, uh, an impact in the entire country. But the coolest thing about everything is we want to see an entire um, generation influence. And I mean the whole package. Because when you come and say, if you're saved from a Catholic background, and if, and if you have been, praise God that he saved you. You haven't really been taught a lot about sanctification, about who the true Christ is, and all these things. And it just takes years to get Mary out of your head, to get the sacraments out of your head. And it just takes forever for you to understand what true life in Christ is like. And I'm not saying God didn't save you from Catholicism, but there's that residue, that hangover from Catholicism. And we just want to see one generation and one model church that can do that. And after all, 25 years, I finally got the great, just so you know what we get to do over there, I get to train pastors plant churches, strengthen churches, evangelize the lost. We do seminars and conferences all over the former Yugoslavia because the language we speak is understood in all six nations of the former Yugoslavia. That's Serbia, Bosnia, Montenegro, Macedonia, Slovenia, and Croatia. So we get to travel all over to do that. We actually now have a mass, an MDF program in Berlin, and we're going to have a graduation in the fall of 30 pastors with an MDiv degree in Europe in the fall. Yeah, praise God. And so what that does is it keeps the guys in Europe and they're not tempted to come over to the States and, and live here. And it's really what we want to do, have the whole package. But my goal is to get these young people to, be, to, to, to love the Word of God and understand how to put off sin, put on righteousness, renew their minds so they can live for the glory of Christ and be that generation. And so the most exciting thing that we're doing right now is after 25 years, we're youth pastors. In fact, I get to serve with a graduate of our school and serve the youth in our church in the entire north, northern part of Croatia. So that's what you're doing in Croatia. I could talk for hours. Thank you so much for letting us be a part of your ministry over there. 
And thank you for giving us a life over there. You support us so that we have food to eat. We get to pay the gas bill. We get to drive a car. We don't have an RV yet, but someday, maybe. But you do all that for us. And really, no kidding, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us a life in ministry and letting us be part of what you're doing over there in Croatia. Now, because I have this youth over there, I took a picture in the first service, but I'm going to take a picture of you guys to send to the youth to show them who is praying for them. So everybody smile really big. All right. Yeah, that looks good. All right, perfect. Thank you guys so much. All right. There's the introduction to the, that's the introduction to the introduction. So here we go. Um, I just don't want you to ever not understand how thankful we are for your church. And you know what's really cool? You come back and your church is preaching the word of God and we're doing the same things. We're doing what you would do over there. You're doing what we would do over here. <laughs> that's a really fun, fun relationship. Okay, today we're going to talk about the glory of God. But what I want to do is try to show you how the glory of God is important to your life personally and in a wonderful and a grand, grand way. In Isaiah 42.8, we read this one passage that Yahweh, God, is talking and he's describing his character. And he says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So what is he saying here? He's saying, my whole nature, my whole existence is that I will be glorified. Because he and he alone is worthy of that glory, worthy of that worship. So he's saying, I guarantee that everything that happens in the heavenlies, on earth, wherever, will glorify me. And this guarantee that he is giving right here means a lot to you very personally. We may think that, okay, that's a big deal that God's saying, okay, he's going to glorify himself. That sounds like some theology that's way over our heads. But this verse is going, I'm going to show you today, means something so important to you that it, I hope you leave here today rejoicing of what this means to you. Now, God's glory, I'm not going to spend time defining this in depth, but God's glory is basically everything he is and everything he does. It's just God, his nature, in totality. That means his majesty, his sovereignty, his, his, his grace and mercy, his righteousness, holiness, his wrath, his justice, his goodness, everything he is, that's his glory. But it's also our response to his glory. That also includes his glory. What we were just doing today. I hope you, the way this works is we have songs that are written by these great artists that they take the word of God and they meditate on this and they express it in, a, in an artistic way. We read it on the screen and all of a sudden it reminds us of the truth of our God and our hearts are full and we express, we just sing out who God is. And God says, that belongs to me. We came to church today to give to God what belongs to him. His glory. We give him praise because all praise, all honor, all worship, all awe, gratitude, contentment, devotion belongs to God for everything he does and all that he is. That's why he exists. All these things belong only to God. But this one timeless principle, and that's what I want to try to explain to you today is that God's glory that is guaranteed 
guarantees your growth. It's an amazing truth. The fact that God is jealous for his glory, the fact that God will not share his glory with another, the fact that God declares for all eternity, he and he alone will be glorified, guarantees your spiritual growth. That's what I want to show you today. Without a doubt, every believer, if you have been born again into the into fellowship with God in Christ Jesus, you will be conformed into the image of Christ. Now again, in my case, that's glacial. My wife can testify. It's not very fast, but the growth is there. We have to be able to see growth. If you look over the last year and you don't see growth, there's something wrong. Now you may need to really look hard with a magnifying glass, but you'll see it. And so the best way we see it is how we respond. You know, somebody cut you off on the highway. What's your third response? Hopefully that's a godly response. That's what we want to see, that everything that happens, our response to God is an act of worship and an act of trust and an act of faith. And the whole problem with us is, even though we're saved and we're seated in the heavenlies, like like Ephesians uh, 2 says, we still live down here in our practice and we don't always respond the way we're supposed to respond. Today I'm going to talk about that and why it's so important that we grow in our love for Christ, that our response, it's... It's the third, second response that's the, that's, that's the right one. Because this will happen if you belong to him. If it's not happening, you don't belong to him. Because in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, another really awesome passage, God explains the whole purpose of salvation. He explains why you're saved or why I'm saved. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, just so you know, I was just in the Northeast, and there was a church called Next Level. In Christianity, there's no like next level. We're put into the heavenlies. Every spiritual gift that exists in the heavenlies, that exists in Jesus Christ, belongs to you today. Nothing's going to happen next Tuesday. It's yours today. But, and this is important because of your calling. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before creation existed, he chose you that you would be holy and blameless before him in love. So for you to be holy, you need all the spiritual blessings of heaven. And the good news is God gives you all the spiritual blessings of heaven so that you'll be holy. And in this, God is glorified. That's why he says in, you know, in Jesus, when he preached the, the, his, his famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and do what? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. God gives us the ability to, to do good works in Jesus Christ so that the Father receives the glory. And he's not going to share that glory with another. This is the whole point of salvation. It's the focus. It's the path. It's everything. So that and, and Paul says in, in, in Ephesians 4.1, this, since this is true, our responsibility is, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, look, since God has done all this for you, all the spiritual blessings, Christ, the comforter, the spirit, the father, the choice, the the salvation, the new life, since all this belongs to you, live like it. Become who you already are in Jesus Christ. Why? 
because that glorifies the Father, and that's the purpose of everything. So in every trial, because really, if you're just living in the lap of luxury and there's never any problems, it's really hard to give God the glory because you kind of think you did it all. That's our biggest weakness. No matter what I do, I kind of think I did it because I'm pretty important to myself. That lesson was really good for me. Thank you so much, Pastor Kevin. I got to learn that lesson to share and not be selfish. My wife will tell you I'm not a good sharer and I really love myself. And so we have to die to ourselves and the God says you'll do that in trials. So in every trial and all these difficult situations, even in the blessings and the adversity, in good days and hard days, regardless of our circumstances, God's zeal, passion for his glory is going to ensure that we experience joy, gratitude, contentment, and peace in the worst situations possible. Because he's going to prepare us for heaven. And again, I just have to focus on this because this is going to be very important to the sermon that we're about to hear. Everything you have comes from God. Everything. That way God alone gets the glory. If you contribute something, God alone doesn't get glory, right? So the righteousness you have if you're saved, from God. The repentance, that's from God. Faith, life, obedience, that's from God. Can you read the Bible and understand it? God did that. Your strength, your hope, your love, your home in heaven, the spiritual gifts, your ability to sing. God did that. Everything that we need, you have from him for his glory. That's why when Paul is writing about the gospel in Romans 1 through 11, how does he finish this? This church he's never been to, and he wants them to understand the purpose of salvation. He concludes the very last verse when he's explaining what salvation is and what it's for. This is how he ends it. For from him... And through him and to him are all things, talking about salvation, or your life. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So be it. That's the end. That's it. So it's all going to be for his glory. God is the author, the originator, the finisher of our faith. Salvation begins with him and ends with him. Our life, our destiny, destiny, our growth in Christ, it all depends upon God. And God will not allow us to fall away from his love. Nothing can separate us from his love. Satan, the demons, adversity, martyrdom, nothing can separate us from God's love. From beginning to end, salvation is only for God's glory. That's the setup. Now we're going to get to the sermon. So I'm, I believe that I'm going to give you two of the greatest comforts for your life today. Two comforts. I'm going to prove what I'm saying is true, and then I'm going to show, show you the practice of that in your life. The proof and the practice. Why it's true, and how that looks in your life. All right, you ready? So we're going to go to this famous guy in the Old Testament, Job. The book of Job. All right? You guys ever read that book? Ever studied that book? It's actually one of my favorites. I actually teach the book of Job in our Bible school for the last 25 years. I love this. Every time I read it, I learn something new. Here's the proof of everything I just said. Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 
500 female donkeys and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the sons of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now it happened when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and set them apart as holy. And he would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now let's apply everything we just learned. Is Job righteous in himself? Or did he receive righteousness from God? He is upright, righteous, a man of God. He loves his wife, his children. He prays for them. He's the priest of his home. He lives for God, and God has blessed him tremendously. In fact, it says he's the greatest of all the sons of the East. He's perhaps the greatest, the richest, not just the richest, the richest, most influential, powerful man in the East. Now let me explain that. When we read the book of Job, we find out he was an elder in the city. That means he was one of many elders or he could have been the mayor of his city. He could have been the governor of a region. And when we read Job, his wealth afforded him many privileges. But not privileges for gain, privileges to serve. Because if you are blessed by God to be the richest man in the East, everybody knows that God is with you. So they want to hear from you. So I truly believe he he preached. He shared his wisdom. And when you read the book of Job, you see that he shares his wisdom with others. He is very generous with his money. He helps the widows. He helps the orphans. He helps the the poor, the people who, who need aid. He is a friend of everyone. I mean, people want to be like Job. Just so you know, that's what it means to be blessed in the, in the Bible. You're, you're in a place of envy. They may not say it out loud, but you say, I want to be like this guy. Job was that man, perhaps one of the only ones. And everybody thought, man, I want to be blessed by God. I want to worship God like Job worships God. I want to have a family like Job has. I want to have wisdom like Job has. I want to understand God the way Job understands. This is Job. I mean, top. He prayed for his children, lived honestly and righteously. Um, Everyone knew that Job worshiped Yahweh and that Yahweh blessed his life. I just want to say something really quickly. They had this theology at that time. The theology is, and Job believed it, his wife believed it, and the four counselors believed it. I think everybody believed it. God is kind of this one-dimensional black and white God like a Coke machine. You know, you put a, a whatever it is, $5 in there, and you get a Coke. <laughs> I was going to say a nickel, but I don't think that works anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's God. You, ob- you obey him, he gives you blessing. You disobey him, he gives you a curse. That's kind of how everybody saw God, even Job. All right? So this is the way it works. So this is the setting of everything. And we know God gave Job everything he has, his wealth, everything spiritually, materially, everything. All right? This is very important to the book. Job is not righteous in himself. He is just like you and I. Everything he has comes from God. Now, we're ready. Verse 6. Now it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Oh, here we go. Satan coming into heaven before God. 
Satan is the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies. Peter says that Satan is our adversary who, who roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And today, as well as in the time of Job, Satan has access to God to accuse us. Right? That's what he does. He's a liar. And his accusations are that God is a liar. Every accusation against me, every accusation against you is literally an accusation against whom? God, right? God, you're a liar. Your salvation is not eternal. Your righteousness is not good. You're not good. It's all smoke and mirrors. This is all a big fraud. That's what Satan's accusations against God are. That's why when you read the book of Job, you always want to wonder because it's easily easy to see that there's a trial going on here. But Job is not on trial. We're not looking at Job's life to see who's Job's on trial. Satan is not on trial. God is on trial. And God allowed that. God did that. He set himself up because he loves a competition. God loves to, God loves to compete because he can't lose. He never loses. And when I say that, we have to understand, when I say God loves a competition, you know how he proves that he's the winner? In your life and in my life. That's how it works. So all of this goes together. So God is on trial. And the accusation is, God, you're a liar. Your salvation is a fraud. And all this righteousness on earth is smoke and mirrors. Okay, so that's what Satan's trying to... And, and what's interesting is, God is the one... Okay, this is so cool. So, so Satan comes to heaven and God says, Hey, Satan, did you see Job? Now, he's not bragging on Job. What he's saying is, did you see my salvation in that son of Adam, Job? You know, after Adam fell in the garden, after you deceived Eve. Remember all that? This is one of Adam's son. Look at him. He's upright. He's blameless. He's righteous. Did you see that? I did that. Satan's going, oh, man. No. No. You're a liar. This is what's happening. Job is incidental. The salvation that God gave him is, on tri- is, is in the focus, all right? So Satan says, uh, in, in verse 9, no, I'm sorry, verse 7, and Yahweh said to Satan, um, yeah, from where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on earth and walking around on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. I got ahead of myself. That's what I'm saying. So God looks at Satan and says, hey, did you see my, my salvation active in a son of Adam? His name is Job. Of course Satan knows this. And this is why Satan wants to bring the accusation. Verse 9. And Satan answered Yahweh and said, yeah, here's where he says, it's, it's, it's all a, a facade. Does Job fear God without cause? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and his, and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But send forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. This is the thing. He says, it's all just a big trick. It's like the, the father that's outside Ralph's or something and his son's on the curb munching on, on chocolate and he's telling everybody, hey, do you see my son? This kid is obedient. Look how good he is. He's just sitting there, not crying, not screaming, no tantrums. And everybody says, take the chocolate away. And then we're going to see what kind of son you really have. He's going to roll around on the ground and throw a temper, temper tantrum. That's what Satan's saying to God. Take the chocolate away. And then we're going to see if your salvation is real. 
So God says, Satan, you don't get it. You don't understand anything. Put me on trial. Put my salvation on trial. And let's see what happens. Verse 12. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not send your hand, forth your hand toward him. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. God says, take anything you want from him, but do not touch him. Now, we need to take a breath here because we're about to read something that's really tragic. If you're a Christian in here today, if you believe in Jesus Christ, living faith, you are either at the beginning of a trial, in the middle of a trial, or at the end of a trial. You're in trials. That's what, that's what happens. God sends trials. And they are not joyous. They do not fill, us, fill our hearts with glee or happiness. They hurt. They cause us great anxiety, fear, pain, tears. That's from God. Trials are from God. Temptation is from us. But trials are given by God. They're neutral so that we will trust in him. All trials hurt. What we're about to read, I mean, it's not a competition to see whose trials are worse, but this is, this is tragic. This is almost, almost amazing, especially when you understand what we already said about Job. He's on top of the world. And it's not just a guy who has a great position. It's a guy that, he's got a great relationship with God, and everybody sees it. Okay? So this is on the world stage, but it's also in the heavenly stages. All the angels are watching, the demons, Satan, everybody in heaven is watching, and everybody on earth is watching, and this happens. Verse 13, now it happened on that day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn, a messenger came, from Job, came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them. They also struck down the young men with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the young men and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans set up three companies and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the young men with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and touched the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. As long as it took me to read that passage, in that amount of time, Job lost everything. But since the entire world knew that all that Job had was a blessing from God, he lost his reputation. He lost his position. Nobody would go to him for his money because he has none. Nobody would come to hear him preach or to give wisdom because he's cursed from God. He is a pariah. He is on the outside. Everybody knows to stay away from him. He's lost everything. His wealth, his position, his influence, his, his, his political power, everything is gone. He lost his children, all of his children. 
everything that gave him joy, everything that gave him comfort, everything that, that made his life, made it worth waking up in the morning is now gone. But more than anything, his relationship with God is on thin ice. Because as I told you, all six people in this book have the same understanding of God. I obey him, he blesses me. I, I sin, he, he, he curses me. That's it. Here's Job. I'm obeying God, I'm cursed. What? Who is God? I'm not sure I know who God is anymore. This man is in turmoil. Everything is gone, and now he has a crisis of faith. Boy, Satan did exactly what he wanted to do. Satan knew where to hit him, take everything away from him, put him into a crisis of faith, and now we're going to see, can God's salvation endure this? God's salvation that he gave to a frail son of Adam. This is unimaginable. This is sorrow that I, I can't even come close to. This is the test. And we have to understand one more thing. I told you the whole world saw this. But since God is on trial and he's the focus of the heavenlies, all the fallen angels and Satan, all the holy angels are focused on Job, not because of Job, but to see what God's salvation will do. Is God a liar? Is God worthy of praise? Is he worthy of the glory he, he, does, he, he commands and demands? Is this going to be, is he going to be glorified in Job's life? Everybody is focused on Job. Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And he knows it was, it was Yahweh's hand who did this. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. That's the glory. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor, give, nor did he give offense to God. That's what God's righteousness looks like in the life of an undeserving sinner. And now the demons know, Satan knows, the angels of heaven know. Now we know. God wins because he always wins. God wins because all glory belongs to him and he'll not share his glory with another. God will not allow us to fall away. A believer may stumble. A believer may, may have bad days, but he will never fall away from God. I am telling you, and I'm telling you as sincerely as I can, I'm 35 years in the Lord, 35 years, and I'm working, and I'm not kidding you, I'm working on my fourth response to be godly. That's, I've worked all the way up to my fourth. I, I go, I, something happens in my life and my first response is self-pity. My first response is selfish. My first response is about me. Why is this happening to me? My whole life is so that I can repent of my selfishness and my pride and put on self, uh, selflessness and humility and a love for Christ by the renewing of my mind so that maybe my third response, maybe my second response will glorify God. That's sanctification. That's what gro if you want to know what growth looks like, that's what it looks like. When you hit a trial, when you hit calamity, is it your 19th response? Is it your second response? Do you see growth in that? Or do you still love to swim in that pool of your own self-pity? Job's first response was worship. <laughs> and all of heaven is looking. And God said, that's what my salvation looks like. 
That's what it means that we're saved for God's glory. So troubles and trials and difficulties are given to you by a loving God who wants to glorify himself in your life and make your life a reason for worship in the, in the heavenlies. That's spiritual growth. But you know what? You know as well as I know, these trials keep coming. Satan doesn't lift up his hands. He doesn't quit. And that's what we see in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, one is the second round. Come on, we're going again. Verse 1, again it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh. And Satan also came among them to stand himself before Yahweh. This guy has no shame. And Yahweh said to Satan, where do you come from? And Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on earth and walking around on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, well, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He said, do you see my salvation? Do you see it? Do you see how that goes? And I love this next line. I'm going to read in a, uh, it's called the uh, Legacy, Legacy Translation. And he still holds fast his integrity. So you incited me against him to swallow him up in vain. He said, you brought me, not God's not tempted, nor can he tempt, but Satan gave him the opportunity to display his glory by allowing Satan to try to crush his servant in vain. It's impossible. In vain. You can't do it. I allowed you to try so that I could be glorified, and that's what I do. Man, Satan answered Yahweh and said, yeah, 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 skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. However, send forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you in your face. So Yahweh said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I've not ever had a trial like this. The first round, everything was taken from him. Everything. And he had a crisis of faith. Now this crisis of faith has intensified. And he's lost his health. And where he was outside of everything, a, 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 a practical leper on the first trial, he's a real leper now. He's on the city dump where they're burning trash. He's sitting among the ashes. And the only comfort he can find is not in counselors, not in friends, not in his wife, he is completely alone, picking up a piece of ceramic tile, scraping his sores. That's the joy of his life. All alone. And when I say all alone, he's confused about God. He still trusts him because he has saving faith. He has a righteous, an alien righteousness that comes from God imputed in his life. So he's, he, he's still truly saved, but he's alone. And his wife, I think his wife is looking upon him with pity and saying, what are you doing? Everybody on the world knows. The children in the street know that Yahweh is against you and he has struck your life. I'd like to just see you die because this suffering is, is too much. Curse God. End it. End it. Curse him and die. That's, that's the best comfort he get from his wife. 
All of heaven is watching. The angels, the fallen angels, the holy angels, Satan, the triune God. What's going to happen? Who wins? Is God going to be glorified in this? I mean, I don't know what else you could take from this man. Verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. Wow. God's glory demands our growth. God's glory guarantees our growth because it demands that God will always be glorified. God will always win in your life, I promise you. If you belong to him, if you're his child, he'll always win. You may stumble, but you'll never fall away. It may be the fourth response, but you will respond wholly. You will do it the way you're supposed to. You will change the way you're thinking. You will repent, and it's just going to take a lot of crushing. And God's not doing that. God's doing that for his glory. Do you understand? That's amazing. And, and we have to, when we read the book of Job, he is not on trial. He is not the focus. The spotlight is not on him. It's on God because Job is not a good man. God is a good in him. Job is not powerful. God is powerful in him. Job is not the hero of this book. God is the hero of this book. God is always the hero of every event in every situation in your life and in my life. All the glory belongs to him alone. That's the way it works. That's the function of salvation. That's the way, it, that's why it exists. And what's the end of this event? What happens in Job? It's a fantastic story. And so really what happens is he, gets, he has four more counselors and they're all saying the same thing. Hey, Job, uh, God blesses obedience and he curses disobedience. And Job just keeps saying, I know I'm a sinner, but I didn't do anything to this level. I didn't do it to this, to deserve this. And they said, no, yes, you did. You just got to repent. He goes, I just want God to show me I'm, I, I didn't deserve this. And so they're still thinking this crisis of faith, trying to figure out this one-dimensional God. And then God comes in a whirlwind and he says, Job, this is, your, this is a great day in your life. I'm going to show you more of myself. And so he says, where were you when I created the sun and the stars and the moon? Where were you when I put the border and told the sea to hear and no more? Where were you when I made the choices of the, the, the um, seasons of, of, of how much it should rain and how much it should snow and where to send the hail? Who takes care of the, the animals in the mountains that no eyes will ever see, but they exist for my glory? Who keeps the ostrich from killing your young? Who, who does all this? And you're thinking, well, does that really answer the question? It does. This is, I think, the same thing that Jesus says in Luke 12, 6 and 7. When he's talking about the sparrows, he says, think of the sparrows. How, how much do they cost? And I really can't remember. Is it five or three for a penny, something like that? Oh, you got it. You guys are really good back there. Five sparrows sold for two pennies. And not one of them was forgotten before God. That's what he's saying. Who's taking care of the whales? The ostriches? The mountain goats. Who does that? I do, and I don't forget one of them. Not one of them. I give life to all of them. Not even, why even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than the sparrows. And I think that's what God's telling Job in the whirlwind. Job, 
I control this whole universe and I don't even sweat. And you're more important. You think I wasn't with you? I gave you my righteousness. I gave you my salvation. I gave you all I have. You think I'm not with you? I think that's what he's telling him. And then Job, for the rest of his life, got to walk in newness of life with God, knowing God better than he did before. Why? Because of this horrible, horrible trial. And I'm not trying to be trite and say, oh, the trial's nothing. That was horrible. But out of that horribleness came knowledge and a renewed mind and a fresh relationship with God. And this is what we do. This is our lives. Spiritual growth is embedded in the righteousness that we, that we have. And in trials, God pushes it to the limit so that that growth happens. Okay, there's the proof. Hopefully I proved it. Now I'm going to talk about you. Talk about a pra- your, the, your, the practice of your life. Now you may be sitting there saying, okay, Todd, yeah, 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 we get it. That's the Old Testament. That's like, what, 4,000 something years ago? That's Job. Hey, we live in a New Testament, New Covenant. It's a little different with us. Well, I think that we still live in this regard in the context of Job. Ephesians 3.10. Ephesians 3.10. Really important passage. It really is one of my favorite passage verses in the New Testament. Ephesians 3.10. Uh, and he's talking about, of course, the gr- glory of the gospel. That's the first three chapters. He's just going on about the glory and the majesty of the gospel. And uh, bringing Jews and Gentiles together, new life in Christ, all, all these things. And so then in verse 10 he says, so that. Now he's given a purpose statement. So that. So why do we have salvation? So that this happens, okay? So that through the church. Now again, we all know the church is not this building. Church is redeemed humanity for God's glory. We've been imputed with the righteousness of God so that we be conformed in the image of Christ so that God is glorified. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, what is that? Well, manifold means multitudinous or whatever the word is, multiple, 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 uncountable wisdoms of God. I think that that is talking about his glory, right? That's his glory. His wisdom, his greatness, his glory. So that through the church, the glory of God might now be made known to whom? To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Is that talking about humans? No. It's talking about angels, holy and fallen. So he's talking about the church, you and me, saved humanity. Those who have a living hope in Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ, we are saved So that the glory of God may be known to whom? Fallen and holy angels. Is that not the book of Job? That's really cool. You and I are living in that same situation. It's like every day God's on trial and he says, look at Todd. And and, and the angels of heaven are looking. And they're trying to find an impetus for for a motivation for, for, for worship. To worship the God of heaven. And then whenever I do the impossible and actually put my hope and trust in God, all the angels say, unbelievable. This knucklehead from Texas can do that? That must be from God. And then they worship God. 
That's how it works. And God says, let me show you something more. Let me send another trial into his life. Another trial into his life. And another trial into his life. My, my regret, and I'm not trying to be funny, my regret is oftentimes it really is my third response. That's my regret. But even in my third response, the angels see what true salvation looks like. And if there should be a motivation for all of us to renew our minds so that it's our first response, this is it. All of heaven is watching. And it's not you doing this, but as you repent of sin, put on righteousness by renewing your minds through the word of God, God is worshiped in heaven. That should be a reason for sanctification, right? God's already put that motivation in our hearts, but that that encourages us to go even more. I'm just going to give you a few passages as, and just to show the application of this and how this is a New Testament theme. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, now, okay, he's just finished with the whole justification, or he's finishing with the whole justification thing. And then 6 through 8 is sanctification and glorification. So he's finishing up justification, preparing them to understand sanctification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's very important because he's about to talk about trials. And he wants us to know that when we're in trials, that's not God's judgment. That's not his wrath. That's something he's given us so that we can grow into the image of Christ. We have peace with God, and that stands forever. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we've been introduced by justification, and now we stand in this sanctification, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. Since we are in sanctification, our whole life is for the glory of God. And not only this, so now he's going to draw a parallel. This is really cool. And not only this, but we boast in our afflictions. So what's, what's equivalent here? Glory of God in afflictions. See the parallel? We also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That does not put to shame means it'll never be in vain. It's always going to work. He's always going to glorify himself in our lives. Again, it's just, the, the only question is, How many times does it take for us to get it right? But he's going to get it. It's going to happen. So we just want to shorten that time. All right? Because this is the way it works. He says, I want you to grow. I want you to be like Christ. And so what I'm going to do is give you a trial. Because in a trial, you have nowhere else to go. You have nowhere else to turn. You put all your trust in me, and I will be glorified through you, and the angels will worship. There it is. Phenomenal. James In the first century, so the church has been dispersed through persecution, and they're all over the place. Wives have lost their husbands. Husbands have lost their wives. Parents have lost their children. Everybody's lost their jobs. They're they're poverty-stricken. They're on the outs with everybody, ostracized. They're they're the cults, the sect of of the Roman Empire. And James writes this epistle to them. And, And the second verse, the second verse in the entire epistle, he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers. Consider your life the highest of joy. Consider what's happening in your life the greatest thing that could ever happen. The death of your wife, the death of your husband, the loss of your children, no job, homeless. 
Consider it the greatest of joy. Why? When you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing because that's what gives God the glory. So you do it with his strength, with his power. Maturity, long-suffering, joy, blamelessness, spiritual success comes when we experience difficult situations. It's God's plan for his glory and our welfare and growth. 1 Peter 1, 6-9. In this you greatly rejoice, even now, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and that's probably better translated since it is necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. See, grief? Look, grief and rejoice are sitting there in parallel. So that, proof, so that the proof of your faith... Okay, again, this proof is to you, but it's also proof to the angels. The proof of, of the nature and, and, the, and, the, and the eternality and the goodness of God's salvation in your life. But it is for you, but it's also for the angels. Being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that day? So the angels rejoice when you are justified. The angels rejoice as you are being sanctified. And then when you come into heaven and you are glorified and you become all that God promised you to be, the angels worship. Because God will not share his glory with another. You are incidental to salvation. You exist so that God will be glorified. And he does it. And when he does that, you just experience all the love and the kindness and the glory and the greatness and the relationship and the fellowship and all those wonderful things. This is the depth of salvation. So he says, um, being, yeah. Verse 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the path of your life. If you're in Christ, this is the path. The ultimate salvation of your souls and glorification. God wants you to know you're saved. He wants the angels to know you're saved. So he gives you trials. Here's the point. The world can go through the same trials you're going through, whether it's loss of a spouse, cancer, whatever, loss of a job, whatever it is. The world experiences the same thing, and it drives them mad. It drives them to bitterness. It drives them to despair and to fear. Hopelessness. I don't know what to do. I think the world now is living in fear despair, and they're going mad because they can't take this. But the same things that happen to the child of God makes us more like Jesus Christ. Turns us into worshipers. Gives us humility and joy and contentment, satisfaction. We become rejoicers, worshipers, while the world is going mad. That's the power of the gospel. And that's why God does it. Because what's natural does not happen with us. What, everything is counterintuitive. You want to worship God more? God may give you cancer. You want to value Christ more? He may take your husband. Nobody wants that. And so when God gives you what you didn't ask for, 
He gives you all the resources for you to rise to the occasion and trust him and, and have faith in him and become who you're supposed to be. God says, I want you to share in my sufferings for your whole life. And then you're going to enter into my glory. And after you've suffered, shared in my sufferings, you know what I'm going to let you do? Share in my glory. And the Father is going to give the Son his throne. And that makes sense, right? Doesn't that make sense? The Father glorifying the Son to give him his, the throne. And we're all going to be looking. And we're going to be worshiping him, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. And we're going to say, this is right and good that the Father is giving the Son his, 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 his throne. And then Christ is going to look at us, the church, and he's going to say, you know what? Have a seat. And we're going to go, no, this is almost blasphemous. How can this happen? He goes, no, this is the point. Rule and reign with me. Who's worthy of that? Who's worthy to be the impetus for angelic worship? Who is worthy to suffer for Christ's glory? And who is worthy to sit on his throne? Nobody. This is why the angels worship. This is why the demons tremble. Because salvation is that powerful. Do you have this powerful salvation? Do you have it? It's really a simple question. And it doesn't matter if it takes five. It does matter. I want, you to, I want it to be the second response or the first response. But even if it takes you five, you're still responding with holiness and righteousness. But maybe you're saying, no, I, I never respond that way. I, I live in that fear and the despair. And, I, and, I, and I, I, try, I come to church because I like to sing and I like the people. And I like to be a part of this church because it gives me some sort of comfort. But no, I don't have this powerful, awesome salvation that leads the angels to worship. This is really important. Does your life reflect what we've been describing. If it doesn't, you can have it right now. Man, you can have it. You can be freed from fear. You can be freed from guilt. You can be freed from sin. And you can be on your way to worshiping God in the worst of, of, in the worst of your days. It can happen now. But it takes you giving your life to Christ, believing with all, believing that Christ is God, yet he died on the cross to take your hell, to give you his heaven. To take, he took your punishment to give you his fellowship with the Father. He took your death to give you his life. I'm not asking you to believe that's true. I'm asking you to give your life to that. I really believe it's this. When you understand that you're a sinner... And you cannot do anything. That you need everything from God. That you have nothing to give him. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him for repentance. Ask him for his righteousness. And live like you're saved. That's it. But if you are saved. If you're my brother or my sister in Christ. God's glory guarantees your growth. But it's seen in trials. This is very serious, and I'm, these trials hurt. These trials hurt, but they're given by a good God for his glory. That's good news.
I'm going to pray for you. God, pray that you would be with all of us now. There's something we need to know. We need to know where we fall down on this. Are we your children who are being, (laughs) who are receiving these trials for your glory? Or are we not your children who are bittered, embittered, or in despair, or in fear because of the trials that we're enduring? Show us today. Comfort us with the truth today. I pray for all of us. For those who don't know you, bring them, save them, give them your comfort, give them your spirit, give them your son. And for my brothers and sisters here today, I just pray that we'll start responding rightly like Job did on that first try. That's really our goal. We just want to worship you and honor you and glorify you in all the trials you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.